based in Bristol. I've been making work uh, for over 20 years now and I'm here talking about a recent project that was funded by the Arts Council which involves three sort of satellite projects under the banner Queer National Treasures and I'm joined today with Bernie Hodges who's just an expert in recording podcasts <laughs> but you also might feel inclined to ask me a couple of questions as we go. I'm sure I will. <laughs> <laughs> I guess a lot of the work that I've been making probably over the last 10 years has explored like digging around archives, exploring LGBTQ plus characters, figures, like people that you might find in an archive and sort of shining a spotlight on them. And with this project, that was no exception. So we kind of looked at Kenneth Williams and uh, Shakespeare and a lesser-known character, Jenny Moore, who was a trans woman from Newcastle. And we kind of grouped them all together in this one project that we, that we entitled The Queer National Treasures. And I'm going to start by talking about Shakespeare, or as we called him, Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> and this was a project that was commissioned by the Shakespeare's Birthplace Trust, who are based in Stratford, and they own many of the properties that are aligned to Shakespeare. Um, Shakespeare's birthplace, Anne Hathaway's cottage. Some of the connections are quite tenuous. This could have been a floor that Shakespeare once stood on, that kind of thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I was commissioned to make a show about them and explored their archives for um, a week and their, and their properties for a week probably about three years ago now, it seems a very long time ago, commissioned to make a short show and had to cancel it because I got an eye infection and then was ready to reschedule it. And then guess what happened? <laughs> a pandemic? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we had the pandemic and um, it took a while to kind of work out what we were going to do next. And eventually we decided to do a Zoom performance and it involved kind of re-looking at all of that material again completely differently. I'd already by that point done an interactive online panto and the person that was really sort of directing that piece was Steph Kempson and we were able to kind of look at different ways of, of how you use that Zoom technology really to tell that story. And, and how did it feel? Because that it's quite different from doing a live performance to doing. I mean, it was still live, but it was on Zoom from your from your home. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I actually felt that there was quite a lot of. Um, I got the same kind of buzz as performing. That the moment after the show, when you turn the computer off, just felt a bit like 
So what happens now? A bit empty. Yeah, so I kind of organised to have another Zoom after party, which was which was nice in its way. But I was I was pretty much like, this is all we've got at the moment, so let's make the most of it. And the show explored things that I hadn't really thought about before. And it, in terms of Shakespeare's identity, his sexual orientation, it has been said that uh, many of his sonnets are attributed to a male. Uh, and so I looked at those sonnets within the poem. But I also... Uh, try to look at some of the um, figures that kind of circulate Shakespeare's legend, um, some of the actors that have performed him, some famous like Laurence Olivier, some that are lesser well-known today like Charlotte Cushman, who was always playing Hamlet and Romeo and had many uh, lovers and ended up living in a commune with a load of other intellectual lesbians. Um, So it was kind of around that. And I performed in my wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> so it's slightly different than being on stage then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it, I was just watching the footage yesterday and having that sort of framing of that piece in the wardrobe, I think kind of worked really well. And the benefit of doing that piece was that because it was promoted by Shakespeare's Birthplace Trust, who have... A, a real international reach because a lot of the, their visitors are tourists from from all over the world. I managed to attract a, a really wide audience. So I think 500 people came to that performance, many of them from all over the world, really. Yeah, so it gave you a broader scope of audience in terms of using the technology. Yeah, that was really exciting about that piece, I think. And also there was another... There was like a visual element to it, which I thought was really interesting because of the technology that you were using. Can you describe a little bit of that? Yeah, so we we worked with Jazz, who was an illustrator, and she was drawing a picture of the Earl of the Earl of Southampton, and she and he was he was described as the fair youth, which is a lot of the sonnets are based on, and she drew a portrait of him throughout the performance, which we kept. Um, coming back to but also I was allowed uh, the technology allowed us to kind of go to show images of the characters that I was talking about so you might see Noel Coward or you might see Laurence Olivier or might see Charlotte Cushman and kind of use those archival images um, within the show. Mm. But there was also a song as well where you use some kind of visual effects as well in terms of your performance pretty sure oh yeah Yeah. that's right yeah yeah so I pre-recorded the lip syncs to the sonnets and so they were there as 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 video and we're able to switch from from those pre-recorded video elements to the live moment as well and actually the way that I the way that we made it was I disappeared back into the wardrobe you know surrounded by the clothes and then came out again but that was the video version so those kind of that was quite seamless in a way yeah it worked quite nicely yeah and what and having that extra element how did that feel in terms of because you 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 use kind of multimedia stuff in your performance anyway but this is a this was a whole different process wasn't yeah. it yeah and I think that to work with Steph was really valuable in that because she was really focused on that so she was kind of like 
a digital dramaturg or I don't know we didn't have an official title for her <laughs> but like she was able to look at this the the text and the script that I'd written and kind of look at ways of transforming it into that form really and she's really still even though you know theatres have now reopened she is still leading the way in in terms of like how how performances can stay online because I think a lot of people still are very scared about going to the theatre and and in terms of access that has opened up a lot of opportunities for people that that aren't able to leave the house yeah and by its very nature it just gives you a wider audience for those performances yeah did it change your relationship with Shakespeare totally yeah I, I mean I talk about that within the show I had an ambivalent relationship to him but working with those sonnets they're so beautiful and I really want to keep exploring that work some more and do some more proper research. Um, I mean, I did the initial research in the archives, but years ago, and then because the archives are closed, I wasn't able to go back to there. But I think um, we're in conversations with Shakespeare's Birthplace Trust about continuing that show, Um, and I want to do some more embedded research and really use some of their archival sources to to really transform that piece and how do you feel do you feel Shakespeare is still relevant today in terms of the issues that we have and the issues that you linked it with within this show I think so yeah I think that um I I think that layering the the way that I made that show, I layered a personal narrative throughout. So it could be my own personal autobiographical stuff that was always that was always there, present, and it, and it, and I related those experiences to 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 mine. Whether that be um, about one's relationship to their aging face. <laughs> which I can yeah. tell you about <laughs> in another podcast uh, or exploring sort of ambiguity between the feminine and the male I suppose yeah mm. and we have a, a wide collection of uh, feedback I would say most of it's extraordinarily positive and people were really appreciative of something that felt like a proper event even though we're in the middle of lockdown nothing else was happening you couldn't leave you couldn't go anywhere so we were you know we had a lot of attraction really to to something that was happening on a Saturday night and a captive audience yeah yeah um and you're going to read some feedback for us now yes fantastic Tom was marvellous, thoroughly entertaining, and I learnt loads. It was charming, but slight, and not that enlightening. I had another obligation and signed off about halfway through. I enjoyed the fact it was online. I watched all the way from Switzerland. It was enriching to see Tom perform. He brings a sensitivity to Shakespeare's work that I have not experienced throughout my studies of his work, which was beautiful. Ambitious. Intimate, heartbreaking, endearingly, slightly undercooked. Not my cup of tea. One of the benefits of lockdown is that here I am in the USA, but can enjoy shows abroad via technology. This was well worth seeing. A wonderful experience. Gliding onwards, trailing sweet. Lilac petticoats rest on their flitting feet. 
Parading down from the noisy town Joy in abundance, highest of spirits The Femmes arrive The Femmes arrive The Femmes arrive Are you ready for this, boys? Um, so the next piece that I want to talk about is a piece called Jenny. It has actually, I keep changing titles whenever I make work because it, it, somehow when the work begins to shift, somehow the title needs to shift. It was called Posed as a Woman, which was a headline in the newspaper that was reporting to about Jenny. Uh, Jenny was a transgender woman living in the 1900s in Newcastle. And we don't know very much about her life. Her life is only documented through her crimes. Um, and we can see that through lots of newspaper articles. So this kind of headline posed as a woman, the more that I sat with it, the more it sort of fed into the very negative idea around um, a character. Uh, and so it felt like what I wanted to create actually was a celebration of someone's life. And so I wanted to give it the name that she would have wanted it to be, which is Jenny. So she was called Jenny Moore. And I came to discover Jenny Moore's story when I was touring my last show, which was funded by the Arts Council, called Haunted Existence. And as part of that project, I went into a few archives across the country and tried to find similar narratives, regional narratives, in the places that I went to. Um, the show Haunted Existence explores a kind of witch hunt of gay men in the 1950s. Um, so Jenny's story was going further back, and it was about um, about a trans woman living in, in Newcastle and their crimes, which were like petty theft, um, running a house of um, ill repute, but was, but still, we didn't know very much about her, and it was posing as a woman as well, wasn't she? Wasn't that a crime at the time as well? Yeah, I mean, there was no, there was, there's no actual real legislation around that, right? But you can ar ar arrest someone for being a potential threat to society. Right. So it wasn't being dressed as a woman per se; it was just about what the intention of that might be. Yeah. But it's interesting that her story is only really told through the fact that she has a criminal record. Exactly, which is, a, which is true of a lot of LGBT people, really. So the version that we get of, of LGBT lives in history is only told th through one aspect of their life, which is the crime. Mm. Um, so it kind of creates a very negative... Um, aspect of their lives really there's nothing celebratory and it just goes to prove i think that archives are a product of the of the patriarchy in that way mm. that we only really celebrate you know the rich powerful often white men mm. uh and so um with jenny the intention of that work was to really break that mold um to celebrate someone's life because they were truly themselves. Yeah. And so how did you fill in the gaps? Well, I sort of did this kind of process that I worked with, a historian that I often work with, 
uh, Jenny's, uh, G- Jeannie Sinclair. There's a lot of genies and Jennies <laughs> within this project. And together, um, and in response to the academic Rebecca Schneider, she developed this idea around bones, flesh, and ghosts of an archive. So the bones are the, the very facts, you know, like dates of birth or when they went to prison. The flesh is actually about, like, bringing in contextual information, so what might be historically known about other cases around that time. And then the ghosts are, like, exactly what's missing from that. So we kind of worked with that sort of methodology of, 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 of exploring that. But then we also collaborated with someone that was really interestingly called Jenny Moore too, wow. who is a, an established sound artist, uh, Canadian and based in London. And I told her kind of bits and pieces of, of the story. I also you know, gave her newspaper articles. And one of them was about uh, Jenny arriving onto the docks with um, other people that were dressed in women's clothing. And I think we've used the Femmes Arrive as as our opening sequence. So um, we can hear that as we open the show. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) At the beginning of the piece. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And, And I suppose working with Jenny was really around if you think about that methodology around the ghosts and the flesh and the bones, Jenny was really providing the flesh for that. Right. I was really also fortunate enough to have some extra funding from Brigstow, which is part of Bristol University. And their aim is to pair academics with artists and teams of academics that might not normally work with each other. Um, So I worked with uh, historians and lawyers and also other researchers in that team. And together we managed to sort of uncover parts of Jenny Moore's life. I don't want to go too much into like that narrative within this podcast because I want people to see the show. But one of them was imagining the possibilities of what might have happened to Jenny, which is where their song Jenny, Jenny Who comes from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so Bernie's now going to read a quote from um, the Professor of uh, Law and Gender and History, Lewis Bibbings. I have greatly enjoyed being involved in the project and discovering or helping search for Jenny's history. One of the methods I use in writing and teaching involves the conscious use of narrative. And the process of assisting with script and performance, as it and the research underpinning it evolved, has been fascinating. I have worked in similar ways on other, very different performative projects. But what I learnt here from working with Tom in particular was a different sense of pace and spacing in terms of storytelling. Of not making the text too crowded. Of the role of pause and interjection. And some of the various ways in which this might be achieved. I'll be thinking about how to draw upon this in my own writing and teaching. Also, as a result of my experience of the project, I'll be teaching trans history until the present to both undergraduate and postgraduate law students studying gender and law later this year. Jenny will figure in this. The historical lens will provide a useful context for which to approach the early 21st century. I'm also hoping 
we can return to Jenny in the future, as I'm sure there's more to be done and maybe a little more to find out. During that whole process, I was really fortunate enough to work with another theatre company. As I was developing the show, kind of in parallel, who were exploring other kind of queer narratives in the city of Newcastle at the same time. They're a learning disability-led theatre company called The Lawnmowers. And we worked on workshops uh, over, I think, six weeks, um, working with Jenny's story, but also other stories that were um, of that time. Um, and we've also got some feedback from that group as well, which is an audio file, which you're going to play for us now. Aren't you, Bernie? Yes. I like how these sessions have kind of like just brought out the creativity in me after being like in lockdown for so long and um, just like everything's been like like a bit stunt and everything. And I think the exercises that you've created um, for us to do, um, you know, like I think there's like a natural flow into them. You've got us like ready, like in that mind space to create and to. Um, explore doing that as well and the writing exercise has been really good and um, it's just like amazing just because you know you never know what you're going to end up with at the beginning of the session at the end of it you've created something where you you wouldn't have even have thought of it otherwise and um, I don't know I, I, I just think you've been like very inspirational with everything you've done and I, I'm, I'm really glad you know to invite you on this project and you've oh. been doing such a good job it's been very really good thank you and the partners for um, the Jenny show were the Gift Festival, which is based in Gateshead in Newcastle. And that was performed online on Zoom, um, not from my wardrobe this time, <laughs> but from my bedroom. <laughs> and then also, just as things were opened up, I went to Newcastle for the Gift Festival, which is a queer uh, performance festival and presented it at the Goesforth Theatre. Um, one of the things that happened, which actually came from one of the researchers, was trying to draw connections and parallels between, because uh, Jenny spent a lot of her time in prison, um, w what happens to trans people who are currently in prison serving now. Um, so at the end of the performance, there's an invitation to um, write uh, a letter to a trans person in prison. And, and it's a part of a wider project called Bent Bars. Um, so as, as the kind of final music plays, the, the audience receive um, a piece of paper and an envelope and they're invited to write a letter to someone that's incarcerated, which will go into a book and then we'll be sent to um, to an incarcerated person in prison, which really sort of felt like it was bringing that story up to date and um, and making it feel relevant, I guess. And t totally. And what does happen to trans people that go into prison today? Is it is it similar to what happened then? Are they are they gendered? I mean, often they are gendered. Yeah. So so that experience is 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 still the case, really. And there are people that have. Um, sadly taken their own lives in in prison because yeah. of that because of their that experience on a lighter note so you did two versions of this you did a live version and a zoom version how different were those two experiences i think we, I, I think 
there was a real development in the way that I was working with the material and finding out more about about Jenny's story. So in that first incarnation, it was basically about showing fragments of the work, really. So it wasn't as, as a formed piece. Mm. And then the piece that I presented at Curious Festival, um, although it was still a work in progress, it was script in hand, it had the structure of a show. And so the kind of next stage, really, is to bring us all together in run room because I've been collaborating with Jenny Moore in particular and the academics and actually none of us have actually really met in real life wow which is the weird thing about the pandemic really is that you just figure the way that way of working but now I think the next stage is to really embed that text in me as a performer work with Jenny and the choir uh, and and have like some real life face to face meetings with the academics and and the interesting thing about the project really is that it won't really ever end because there's lots of things that we won't ever know but things keep fading in and out of view so as soon as we finish that show Lois actually found out more information about Jenny it was too late to include it in the show but it might go into the next version. So it can be ever-evolving. I think it can, yeah. yeah. And you mentioned Jenny Moore, the sound artist. How many pieces of music did she do for Jenny? So she did three pieces in total. Right, amazing. And we're going to hear another one. So should we hear another one? Yeah. was um, a piece that Jenny made that sort of was a moment in the show where it turned from it turned from sort of like a lecture performance into something that felt like it was much more about making contact with the dead so it was about a um, a bit like a seance a bit like a um, exorcism Mm, that's a nice nice way of putting it and so talking about the sort of spirit world one thing that I wrote in which leads us to the third and final work that I'm going to talk about is uh, is a shining intimacy and that piece is about um, Kenneth Williams and Maggie Smith and their friendship in particular and so this was written really at the beginning of the very first lockdown and I think that at that time I had this feeling that I was reading so much about Kenneth Williams and Maggie Smith and their friendship I've sort of felt like they were keeping me company in my flat in some weird way that they would entertain me and we would and I would have these sort of fantasies that we would be performing shows together and hanging out in dressing rooms together and going for spaghetti bolognese after a show and all that kind of stuff (laughs) but you also said that you liked the relationship between a straight woman and a gay man and that mirrors your relationship with with a friend who also passed recently yeah so claire although she wasn't a a straight woman she ended up in a in a in a heterosexual relationship and um it was a relationship that felt very full of joy and ideas and creativity and 
and it felt very aligned to, to Maggie and Kenneth. Um, and so, you know, within a lot of my work, I tell a story about someone else, but there's this other extra autobiographical layer, I, which I added into that work. Yeah, you um, link it into your own experience, don't you? Yeah, and by doing that, I really hope that it, it makes everyone relate it to their own experience, really. Um, I don't want it to just feel like I'm just only can relate it to my own experience. <laughs> no, no, but I feel if you personalise it, then other people can... Pers- they, they have licence to do it themselves within that show. I really hope so, yeah. yeah. And Kenneth Williams has been a character, really, that I've been embodying in different ways for many years. I performed um, as Kenneth when I was opening the film Prick Up Your Ears, which is that Joe Orton film. Yeah. And, yeah, have experimented with being him for a long time. And then I got sort of fascinated with their friendship of Maggie and thought, what if I actually perform as Maggie as well? So the first step was to kind of write this performance, which I performed also on Zoom, but in regular chunks. So throughout the whole of the lockdown, I worked with Jenny Bell to create these kind of online assemblies that happened every morning at nine o'clock. And every couple of weeks, I might do another 10-minute extract as it was developing. And kind of it was a really good way to gather feedback from people and sort of begin to learn lines. And then it was this sort of moment where things began to open and I performed a sort of work in progress at the wardrobe, which you were yes, there, Bernie. Was, yeah. yeah, with my mask on. <laughs> <laughs> and then I sort of made it into a little short film and so that allowed you to kind of cut and paste the characters of Maggie and Kenneth with me in the frame if you know what I mean yeah in the in the live performance so you you had a multimedia element do you think doing the stuff on zoom as well as being a theatre performer helped you kind of piece that all together for that that performance I think so because you I just became really um very aware of the camera in a very different way and how you create intimacy um, with your computer screen and how you create intimacy when you're performing in a theatre. So uh, uh, are they different? You just get closer, <laughs> I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I guess you can do in the theatre as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so Hannah Whitaker was the filmmaker that worked with me um, to create firstly the initial film and then we re-recorded the Maggie and Kenneth moments that would be then projected as the live performance. So they weren't ever, they were, they were done in two separate occasions really. Nightmares happened when a wig didn't turn up um, for that film but we managed to get the right wig for the actual filming of the live performance and ended up performing the show at the Chelsea Theatre in London in August. Yeah. Which you were there too. I was. And it's like you're following me. <laughs> I'm your stalker. <laughs> and those projections also had a ghost-like quality to them. Do you think this is a running theme in some of your performances? Well, I just became... Re- I, I've, I've really become obsessed with this particular material, the gauze that you can project on that always makes characters very like very striking but Mm. also have this ghostly appearance the projector in the Chelsea theatre wasn't so strong so they were a little more faded than I would have liked but they did have that 
yeah, they definitely had that ghost quality. And the performance really is about me being alone in my flat during the pandemic and having to rely on my imagination yeah. to entertain me, I think. Uh, yeah, and I think a lot of people will relate to that because sometimes when you're left on your own, uh, say during a pandemic or whenever, when you have to be on your own, kind of the ghosts of things which have happened before and people that have been in your life before kind of haunt you in mm. a way, don't they? Mm. And I find that when I, whenever I make work, I just become so obsessed about those characters that actually to present them as that, as haunting characters, mm. feels really true to what, it, what I am experiencing. Yeah, feels quite natural. Mm. So... One individual that's been just like brilliant for the whole of those projects that I've all three projects that I've worked on has been Jenny Bell, and she acted as a kind of dramaturg outside eye throughout that whole thing. I was lucky enough to um, be awarded the Striker Light um, Let Artists Be Artists um, position, which is basically funding me to be a proper artist for the whole year, to be on the payroll, have a regular wage, holiday pay, all those benefits of like what normal people have. Mm. And they gave me a residency at Gloucester University during the summer, and Jenny came along. Jenny's an amazing academic as well, and so she's recorded a brilliant uh, voice note for us to listen to now. My name is Jennifer Bell, and I worked as an outside eye on both Jenny and A Shining Intimacy. I'd say the striking thing about Tom's writing is that he has an eye for spotting poetry in the verbatim sources from which he works, and we really wanted to draw that out. Um, he actually uses very warm open demotic language as a narrator but because he shifts registers between his quoted material um, which is anything from Shakespeare's verse to doggerel to diary entries to a song to historic newspaper copy we were essentially working with a kind of textual patchwork and our job was to enhance that patchwork through making sure we achieved the right meter and music in the speech and through shifting between Tom's chosen performance modalities of, uh, of monologue, film, dance, live art and song effectively. So, for example, we used um, gauze at the back of the stage as a visual metaphor to delineate the different realms of uh, present time and remembered time um, so that film could either be projected onto it or, to, or Tom could dance behind it or perform in front of it, depending on what point in time the, the text was conjuring at any given moment. Um, and we paid very close attention to details in the text to make sure that it was expressed as meaningfully and as generously as it could be. Um, and as such, I guess we were regarding each piece like a like a three-dimensional poem almost, um, creating their own inherent structures and rhythms which had motifs and, and movements to underpin them. Um, and each piece definitely did, did require that degree of uh, subtextual analysis because Tom is, is he's working between complex layers of characterization. Uh, so, for example, he would be playing 
Maggie Smith playing Desdemona or he may be uh, representing Jenny as a ghost or as a magpie. Um, and we made sure that Tom could express each character with the appropriate degree of proximity to the audience and and pace so that we could achieve the perfect intimacy and delight in these personal stories. So Jen said in that piece that you had to deal with multiple levels of characterization. How did you approach that? Um, it, it was a tricky one, really. Um, by the way, I love the way that Jenny uh, spoke about that because uh, she's, she speaks so um, articulately about it. And it's really great when someone does that about your work because you should, it's not like you've ever, you, you haven't framed it in that way yourself. Yeah. You've, I think I've done it instinctively, which is probably a response to what you just asked me, actually. Yeah. It's instinctive. But also there was something about, I know that someone gave me some feedback on something and they felt like, things weren't they were unnecessary details and I and I felt quite pedantic that they weren't but I felt like they needed what that what that proved to me was that they needed to be pushed further so in that in the shining intimacy show I'm performing as I'm myself but I'm also Ariel in the Tempest because in the in the in the story Kenneth and Maggie are playing Prospero in The Tempest so there was this kind of suspension of belief that you have to understand that I'm these different characters Mm. which makes it sound quite worthy or wordy but it didn't I don't think it felt like that not a not as an audience member no it didn't it didn't feel as complex as that yeah it felt quite natural yeah Yeah. I mean you it wasn't like it was all you it was those separate characters yeah if you understand what I mean by that yeah, I think I do, yeah. And I'm quite into telling people what's happening. Like, I, this is me, I'm Tom, I'm a performer, I have these dreams, I'm in a dressing room with Maggie Smith and Kenneth Williams, and they're playing Prospero, and they've asked me to play Ariel, which is why I'm dressed like this, yeah. you know. Or I'm in my wardrobe as me, and I can tell you stories about how I relate to Shakespeare and the things that I've researched. So it always has this sort of root in actually who I am and what I know. And that allows me to go into many directions in in a very truthful and honest way Mm. um, because it's rooted in my own experience. Some beautiful people came to uh, the Chelsea Theatre show some people that knew Claire um, and that worked in the theatre collection in the archive with her, and some people that that work in the arts. So I've got th- I've got three now that I'm going to ask you to read out, if that's all right. Of course, it's the most moving thing I've seen for ages. If Tom ever has any self doubt, remind him he made a hard bitten, cynical IT project manager cry. Pem Shering, the Chelsea Theatre. There's so much more to Shining Intimacy than a theatre show about the friendship between Maggie Smith and Kenneth Williams. Tom Marshman weaves an absorbing homage to a close friend into his embodiment of the two luminaries of stage and screen. I was transfixed and moved by the narrative, as well as Marshman's deft shape-shifting. An absolute must-see. Anne Goodman.
love this. It was a beauty of a show, and you're always mesmerising, but this piece was a specially crafted treat. Blythe Peppino. So, Tom, with all of these performances and pieces, there seems to be a little bit of a Shakespearean theme with all of them. How, do you, how, how did that come about? How do you feel about that? I mean, it's weird, really, because I don't think I would have done that a couple of years ago. But I think that having had that opportunity to spend some time at Shakespeare's Birthplace Trust in the archive and and explore Kenneth Williams, like the diversity of Kenneth Williams as a performer, really. A lot of people just know him for the carry-on films, but he was a really accomplished actor. That it just is a reflection on on the breadth of my research, I suppose, really, and and influences, mm. and brings it back to the kind of overarching title of the three works, which was the the queer national treasures, I guess, connects it all up together. Um, are there more queer national treasures? What, I mean, what's next for you? Then? I mean, it, it, it sort of feels a bit like there's queer, there's lots of queer national treasures. We've picked three, really. Mm. It was it, it was a need to try and link them together in some way, and actually, when you see them as works, as three works together, there's there's lots of connections with them. Yeah, totally. Um, that might not seem obvious from their kind of the title and and how you might talk about them. All three works, you know, uh, in conversations with different organisations about how they might be presented um, next year from from the spring onwards, really. Um, so I want to tour Shining Intimacy um, in sort of studio black box theatres. I'm interested in finding like the appropriate space now for Shakespeare because I think it, I want to take it into the real world. And what, where is that performance? It might not be a theatre. It could be, you know, in my head it feels like somewhere cavernous like the tunnels, mm. uh, you know, under, under railway tunnels or some, somewhere like that that has that sort of loaded history mm. and with Jenny I just feel like there's a really strong urge to get us all in the same room together now now that we've kind of I mean the pandemic is still happening but we're able to do so much more than we were mm. it just is important really that we meet up and and start to explore this story as a as a face-to-face collaboration I think and let it evolve even more with yeah. the knowledge which has kind of been revealed yeah. even further. Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting. Jenny, Jenny, ooh. Jenny, Jenny, ooh. Tell us, tell us what happened to you. Jenny, Jenny, ooh. Jenny, Jenny, ooh. Tell us, tell us what happened to you. The fans arrive Jenny, Jenny, ooh The fans arrive Jenny, Jenny, ooh Tell us, tell us What happened to you Jenny, Jenny, ooh Jenny, Jenny, ooh Tell us, tell us What happened to you I know, I know, I know, I know. Hmm. 
Let me tell you about it. Let me, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I think it went something like.